This is the Create Love, Create Freedom podcast. My name is Allison Fisher. And on today's episode, we are going to be kind of toying with the idea about whether or not there is healthy narcissism. So the last couple of days, I have been kind of going down the research rabbit hole um, on narcissism, but also really kind of very deeply looking at the different traits of narcissism. I've heard some people say that there are, you know, four different kinds of narcissists. I've also heard other people say there are 10 different kinds of narcissists. And it seems to me that, you know, that's, that could be pretty, pretty accurate, you know, that there could be all these different kinds of narcissistic personality traits. And this got me thinking because a little while ago, I did a podcast episode on the dark triad. So that is narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. And I I kind of discussed all three of those. So, you know, narcissism can be grandiosity, but it can also be almost kind of a introverted, covert kind of narcissism. Um, There's always a perceived superiority in some way. There's an entitlement. There tends to be a lack of empathy. And then when it comes to psychopathy, there is impulsiveness. There is kind of this emotional coldness. And there's also remorselessness. And then for Machiavellianism, there's a manipulativeness. Um, a self-interest, and a very domineering personality type. Not just being dominant, but domineering, needing to put dominance on other people. And as I talked about in that podcast episode, I feel like my own traits, because I took a test on the dark triad, and I feel like my own traits increased like kind of where I am now in life versus if I would have taken the test 10 years ago. And so this kind of got me thinking about, okay, what does, you know, is there a healthy kind of narcissism? What would that look like? Um, But this also kind of got me thinking about just even the term narcissism. And, you know, that word goes back to Greek mythology. So I thought first we would discuss that a little bit because I find it very fascinating and interesting. Um, So I first want to talk about Narcissus. uh, And then I also want to talk about a love story from Greek mythology on Echo and Narcissus. And some takeaways there for us to consider as we kind of move into this discussion around healthy narcissism. So, Narcissus was a hunter, and you know, in Greek mythology, and he was really known for his beauty. Um, there were a couple of other, um, what would I call them, uh, Greek gods that were also known for their beauty. 
Um, one was, um, one was Adonis. One was, um, Hermaphrodite. And then another was Ganymede. And these were very handsome males, right? In the Greek pantheon. And what I find really interesting is that this this kind of boy, right? The the story is kind of talked about from the perspective of kind of a young boy. Uh, he wasn't a man yet at this time, but many people, both uh, Greeks, uh, nymphs, as well as um, you know mortals, would see him as being very attractive, both men and women. So again, he was this young hunter. He was the offspring of uh, river deities. So it makes sense that eventually he is going to look at his reflection in a river. Um, but I find it really interesting that the only person that he could love was himself. And keep that in mind. Keep that as a little marker in your brain as we continue to talk about narcissism versus healthy narcissism. And you know, what narcissists, uh, excuse me, narcissists found was that no one else was as attractive to him as he was. So therefore, he couldn't imagine falling in love. So because of this, many people, um, you know, whether they were gods or goddesses or, you know, just simply mortals, um, they were very disappointed. Um, and he rejected a lot of people uh, in his pursuit of constantly seeing himself as being more attractive than almost anyone else. And in my mind, this attractiveness, certainly in Greek mythology, really looks at how he physically saw himself. But as we understand with narcissism, there's a, quite a few more traits person prioritizes themselves in ways that are more than just their looks. And this, of course, leads to, uh, could lead to a narcissistic personality disorder, um, you know, and, uh, you know, many different types, whether it's five or whether it's 10 different types of narcissism, you know, whatever that is. So who is Echo? Echo was a nymph. And she was described in Greek mythology as one of Narcissus's suitors. And what I found really interesting is that she was very stunning. She was a mountain nymph. She was actually pursued by both Pan and Apollo. Um, but she rejected their approaches. And what's interesting, of course, is that Zeus had his way with many different nymphs, but he never did with Echo. Uh, what he did was he enlisted Echo's services so that she could sit and talk with Hera, Zeus's wife, and kind of keep her preoccupied so that Zeus could go out and have his infidelities and then come back uh, to Hera. But when Hera realizes that Echo was really helping Zeus, um, she cursed the nymph so that the nymph could no longer speak 
on her own behalf. Uh, put a mental uh, marker in that one as well. As well, and so Echo was then not able to speak on her own behalf. She was not allowed to have her own voice, and she could only repeat what others said. So Hera had condemned Echo to wander the earth. Um, then she finds Narcissus, and she calls out to him, but she also watches him from a distance. And what I find really interesting is that Narcissus, excuse me, Narcissus treats Echo with the same disdain for which for which he treats everyone else, meaning he completely ignores her. Now, Echo immediately fell in love with Narcissus. So her love was so strong that even though she was rejected by Narcissus, she personally would disappear, but her voice would remain. Um, you know, so then Narcissus is following, uh, excuse me, Echo is following Narcissus through the woods. And he hears, you know, wrestling in the in the bushes, whatnot, and he turns and says, Who's there? She echoes his words. So Narcissus interprets this sound as being his own voice reverberating through the woods. And what I find really interesting is that when she actually approaches him, when Echo approaches Narcissus, he cuts off her arm and instructs her to leave him alone. She remains very lonely, very brokenhearted her entire life until she disappears in the forest and she's just replaced by an echo. Um, there's also another myth to kind of go along with that where um, there is a young man named Aminius and he is also, he also falls in love with Narcissus. And Narcissus rejects him. And so with the sword that Narcissus gave him, um, Amenius hangs himself at the entrance of his own home. And what I find what I find kind of fascinating with these kind of stories, especially Narcissus's romantic relationships. When you think about the kind of person that a narcissist gets into a relationship with, um, particularly, let's say it's a man who's the narcissist and then the woman, right? Um, that is usually a very codependent woman. It is a woman who has not learned how to use her own voice. And she's often harmed, right? Kind of like Echo's arm was cut off in myth. The the woman Echo, kind of in you know real life, she's often harmed by Narcissus, the narcissist. She's often the woman who is kept quiet. Um, instead of being the woman who is able to, you know, really kind of attract and be with a very kind of healthy man. What I find fascinating as well is that. Uh, you know, further in the myth with Narcissus, he 
bends down and brings some water from the from this river, right? And again, we have to remember that he comes from um, water people. And he had been on this kind of quest, out hunting, looking for something. He spots the river or the pool of water in the distance. And then as he's leaning over, again, remember, like he's not that old. Uh, at least Greek mythology tells us that you know, he was not a man yet at this time. So not 1820. He was younger than that. So he leans over to drink some of the water and he sees the most beautiful creature he's ever seen. And that's when he falls hopelessly in love. But he doesn't realize that he's actually looking at himself. He's staring at his own reflection. And what I find fascinating as well is that, you know, he knows now what it's like to be loved by another person. And that person is not going to return his love to him. So interestingly enough, uh, in anguish, uh, and because he's feeling so, so guilty, so this, all this unrequited love, he takes his own life and his blood kind of pooled together to become this kind of beautiful white and gold flower, the Narcissus flower, which at least um, in a lot of the pictures that I have looked up, uh, it looks very similar to a kind of white um, daffodil with kind of that yellow face, I would say, or that, that yellow kind of trump in the middle. And obviously there's a lot that we can take away from these different kinds of stories. The narcissist doesn't always understand the role that they play in harming other people. Um, they also really let, you know, uh, pride and ego get the best of them. Um, you know, considering they really need to consider their actions and the consequences uh, those have not only on other people, but also on themselves. What I find interesting as well, again, is the kinds of partnerships that happen due to the narcissist being, or narcissist being with someone like Echo, a woman without a voice, the woman who's only able to repeat what Narcissus originally told her. And again, this kind of myth, um, kind of brings me to my own story for a long time. And I like to call it the wounded feminine. I talk a lot about this on Instagram. Um, but the wounded feminine is really the woman who she's the dependent daughter still. She does the things that men tell her she should do so that she can gain love and attention and affection. And much like that, you know, Zeus used uh, Echo to kind of do his dirty work or, or keep Hera entertained. So Hera keeps Echo small and she takes her voice from her. And I think that this often happens in very unhealthy mother-father dynamics in our lives, in our childhoods. And so we kind of become these women who are often very attracted to the narcissist. And for me, I realized that 
it took a long time for me to learn how to create boundaries, have a voice. Um, It took me a long time to really kind of have a backbone and say, no, that's not what's best for me. Um, You know, it took me, uh, you know, learning and understanding about my feminine, um, as well as creating a strong, healthy inner masculine, right? Uh, Because, you know, I had both mother and father wounds. I had anxious, you know, insecure attachment, a lot of people pleasing, um, a lot of abandonment wounds. And so again, you know, I had to learn how to make my own choices choosing a future that I want, not what my parents or a man wanted. And what I, you know, to to kind of bring this all back to, you know, healthy narcissism, narcissism, just kind of like Machiavellianism and um, psychopathy is, it's all a spectrum, right? And so if we think about, like think about a bar, you know, um, kind of in your mind, when you're too far to the right of that bar and you have no kind of sense of self and you have not learned how to put yourself and your needs first, you're always trying to please other people. What I find really interesting is that that is an unhealthy level of, quote, narcissism, Right. And a healthy level on a spectrum is really kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, So I was uh, doing some research for this podcast episode, and I came across a quote by a licensed health um, counselor based here in Washington State. Uh, She actually wrote the book, Break Free from Narcissistic Mothers, a step-by-step workbook for ending toxic toxic behaviors, setting boundaries, and reclaiming your life. And her name is uh, Hannah Aldred. And she said, again, narcissism runs on a spectrum. That means one can either have too much narcissism, um, as seen in narcissistic personality disorder, or not enough narcissism, which leads to depression and low self-esteem. So what I find fascinating is that in our society, um, any kind of narcissism has kind of become this bad thing. Yet at the same time, when we have a healthy sense of self, we're somewhere kind of in the middle, in my opinion, on the narcissist spectrum. And there are forms of narcissism that are actually beneficial to your daily life. And this is known as, you know, healthy narcissism. I tried to think up like maybe a better term because I don't really love the term healthy narcissism, but I couldn't really just yet. It'll probably happen one night when I'm trying to fall asleep or something like that. And then maybe I'll mention it later on, you know, in the podcast. But um, I find that it's it's really important to understand that healthy narcissism is very different from narcissistic personality disorder and of course you know those types of folks that's the overt the covert narcissism right where you're you're harming someone else a lot like narcissus harmed people around him who fell in love with him who thought that he was wonderful and beautiful and he did not think that they were as good as he was. 
And so, again, this this kind of middle spectrum, what does that really mean? What does that kind of look like? So I'd like to kind of get into, you know, that kind of healthy narcissism. And I, I think it's, for me, it was really underst- important to understand that I'm not, I don't have narcissistic personality disorder when I have a positive self-esteem, healthy ambition, self-confidence. I value myself. I have persistence and resilience, a strong sense of well-being, being willing to take incredibly good care of myself, believing that I am someone worthy of taking good care of, right? For me, um, you know, that was years in the making for a very long time. I also think part of it was due to the um, evangelical Christian kind of background that I grew up in, which was always sacrifice yourself, especially if you're a woman. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that that was the only message that I was given, but it was a strong one. Now, that could also be due to the kind of personality type that I have and the fact that I'm both an empath and a highly sensitive person. And so, you know, maybe, maybe I grasped onto those things more so than other people. But to me, it took a very long time to realize and to recognize my own value. Um, I always understood the value of others. And that's interesting too, because when you look at someone who has um, anxious attachment, like I used to have, we had, or, or I had a very positive view of other people and a very negative view of myself. What's interesting is people with um, uh, avoidant attachment, they have a very positive view of themselves and a very negative view of other people. I actually did a podcast episode on um, avoidant attachment and narcissism and, and some of the characteristics and the connections that can happen between the two. It does not mean that if you have avoidant attachment that you are a narcissist, um, but there were enough similarities, right, that it kind of made me pay close attention to that. Someone with disorganized attachment has a negative view of themselves and a negative view of other people. So for me, it took a really long time to to really get to a place where I was able to prioritize my own needs and meet those needs without needing the attention, the affection, the praise of other people. I think as well, you know, I I had to unlearn a lot of things. I had to kind of understand that the way that my mother, my father view the world, particularly my mother, it was always, you're so self-centered. When in fact, I was bending over backwards for other people. I have a feeling now, I have not spoken to her about it, but I have a feeling now that she sees me as even more self-centered. She told me a few years ago that I wouldn't make a good mother because I, basically the way that she put it was, I wouldn't be a good mother because I'm good at putting my own needs first. And I again, when we look at the mother wound in our society, 
I think part of it is that here in the United States, at least, a lot of women struggle with feeling like they're a good enough mother or, or that they're being a bad mother if they prioritize some of their own needs. And I find this interesting because quite a few other countries don't feel this way. I know I bring up France quite a bit. Um, I'm studying um, on my Babbel app. I do um, a French lesson every day, trying to brush up on my French and whatnot. But the French are very interesting to me. I've read a couple of books on parenting. One was Danish parenting. One was Dutch parenting. I've read a couple on French parenting. I'm not saying that those other countries have you know, are perfect in their parenting, but I find it very fascinating to study some other areas and understand how other people raise children, especially since I was raised in a pretty unhealthy family um, with a pretty unhealthy mother. And so, you know, French parents, you know, they in general raise pretty healthy kids kids that are both independent and are able to, you know, form those deep connections. Now, I'm not saying that that is every household in France by no means, right? Everybody has, you know, mental health issues, uh, or I'm sorry, every country has mental health issues, you know, um, has, uh, you know, the different um, attachment trauma that happens in childhood, all of that. But in general, I think part of you know, what I read was part of the raising kids that are also very good at playing by themselves. Uh, one woman wrote that, you know, French parent or, or the French parents don't allow their children to take over every single, you know, room in their home. So there aren't necessarily, I'm not saying that again, I'm not saying that this is every uh, household in France, but you know, most of the children go and play in their rooms. When an adult comes over, the child says hello and, you know, interacts with that person for a little bit, but then they will also go and play on their own. And part of the understanding is also, you know, that their toys aren't all over the living room in, in the shared family spaces. Can you bring out your toys and play? Absolutely. But do they stay there and do they just litter the floor? Not always. I found that very interesting because here in the United States, children very much permeate every aspect of our lives to the point where we don't have a healthy sense of kind of letting kids go anymore, you know, allowing them to grow up and be adults. Um, there's a lot of helicopter parenting and there's also a lot of lawnmower parenting. Helicopter parenting is where you're always hovering, you're always, you know, um, always there to to fix something, to, uh, you know, do whatever for your child. But lawnmower parenting is paving the way for them so that life isn't too tough. And in my personal opinion, I wish that my own parents would have allowed me to fail more, not just to be tough or resilient, but simply so that I could rely on my own self, right? So that I could kind of be somewhere in the, the middle of the spectrum of narcissism, you know, being able to uh, take care of some of my own needs and whatnot. And the other area of French parenting I found really fascinating was that, you know, uh, French children will live with their parents for a bit longer 
but they also understand that their parents have their own lives. The child isn't always the center of attention. So, um, you know, I, I find this to be to be very interesting. I think that some other traits of, of healthy narcissism and a healthy narcissist, again, they recognize their own value. They're able to support their friends. Um, and they also don't feel this deep sense of competitiveness uh, with their friends like someone with narcissistic personality disorder do. And when things go wrong with someone who has that healthy dose of narcissism, they don't, they may look at obviously that, that negative thing and say, okay, what happened? What's going on here? They don't necessarily overthink it or dwell on the negative event. Um, they don't try to blame someone else. They take ownership and responsibility of their, their failures, and they look at ways to, to improve, to move forward. And so, you know, again, I, I find this really interesting because I think that there are, there's some very important things that we can pull out of that. So let's do a little healthy narcissism versus unhealthy narcissism. So the healthy narcissist will really embrace life, uh, love who they are, and really love and enjoy the path that they've chosen. They might be very willing to change that path um, when they feel it's necessary or, you know, that, you know, when we just kind of have that feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling a little stagnant. It's time to change things up. Now, the unhealthy narcissist, you know, that's very high on the narcissist spectrum, they are a lot of times unable to kind of connect with the realities of life. Um, so they kind of live in this bit of a fantasy world. They are trying to convince and show other people that their life is much better than what it actually is, but it's also better than the people around them. Their life is better than the people around them. Um, I think another kind of trait is, well, let's talk about the empathy kind of portion. So in a healthy narcissist, they have empathy for others. They're able to connect um, with other people. They're also able to connect with their own feelings and experiences. Um, they're able to create those healthy relationships. The unhealthy narcissist is very apathetic. Uh, they really kind of don't care about the emotions of other people. And they really simply focus on what drives them, uh, their own feelings, their own emotions. And really kind of puts little stock in the emotions of other people. So again, that lack of empathy. They can't connect to other people's journey or path, and so they very much focus on their own. A healthy narcissist cares about the well-being of other people. The unhealthy narcissist really cares about their own well-being and doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about the well-being of others 
and when someone either kind of expects them to or asks them to, they will really kind of often dismiss that, uh, really kind of push that to the back of their mind. Let's look at competitiveness. So the healthy narcissist is someone who can manage a lot of the ups and downs in life. Um, they understand that, you know, some days are tough and they will go through both good times and hard times, but just like the hard times won't last, neither will the good times. Life is a constant flux and flow, but the unhealthy narcissist, they really struggle to, they, they really struggle with, um, loss or failure. Um, any sort of defeat in their life. The healthy narcissist, they might be a competitive person, right? That just might be their nature, but they're not competitive necessarily against other people. They're more kind of with that focus of, okay, maybe that person beat me out or I did better than I did, but I grew, I became better through my on kind of my own journey and in my on my own process uh, process and the unhealthy narcissist is the person who really struggles with losing to anyone uh, the healthy narcissist is very proud of their accomplishments the unhealthy narcissist really boasts about their accomplishments but also will embellish them um to the point where you know, the, the accomplishment uh, is, and the embellishment is there to always be better than other people. What I find interesting too is the, the kind of compliment. So the healthy narcissist, they appreciate when people see that they brought value, that they did something, that they achieved something, right? But they don't necessarily seek it out because they find their sense of self-worth within themselves. They appreciate, you know, even if other people don't mention it, right? They know that they did a, a job well done, right? They offer themselves that praise. The unhealthy narcissist really needs the attention and the praise of other people to feel good about themselves. A healthy narcissist can feel good about themselves without other people praising them. Um, let's see, a few others. I think it's interesting that the healthy narcissist, you know, if they're working towards, you know, uh, a goal, um, and of course, most of the time, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm always encountering some sort of roadblock, some sort of obstacle. And the healthy narcissist is the person who says, oh, okay, yes, I expected this. I thought that this would come my way. I knew that this wasn't going to be an easy process. I'm over here putting myself out there. I'm going to find a way around it, over it, through it, whatever. And the unhealthy narcissist really, I don't know if they necessarily always give up, but they will complain about and give an excuse for 
the thing that got in their way. Oh, well, I would have done that too, except this happened. Instead of saying, oh, well, shoot, this happened. I'm going to find a way around it or over it or through it, right? And so, you know, I, I think that that is really kind of interesting. Um, Because again, for me, I have had to kind of find my own healthy narcissism. Um, I really kind of feel in my childhood, like there was always, there was always this, well, it's probably because both of my parents were very, um, you, you know, had insecure attachment. So neither of my parents were very comp, comp, not competent people. They were competent in certain areas. They were not very confident in who they were. And this obviously trickled down to both myself and my sister. And so I've had to learn how to bump up my like narcissistic personality traits to kind of like a healthy level. Uh, the same thing as well with uh, some of the others on the dark triad as well, you know, the, the psychopathy. And it's not for me, it's not remorselessness or impulsivity, but it's more learning how to kind of step away from some of the emotions, create some emotional distance. And the Machiavellianism for me is not being manipulative and only self-interested, but it's really learning how to not always put my own needs last. And instead of being manipulative, to look at the situation and not just say, oh, well, I'm only going to do the things that make sure that everybody else are taken care of, you know, where everyone else gets what they need, but I don't. There's none left for me. And so instead, I, I look at it as, you know, how can we all get what we need? And some people say that's a little bit manipulative to kind of look at the system and say, okay, um, I'm not trying to necessarily work every system, but I am trying to say, all right, you know, how do how do my needs also get met in this kind of space? And again, that those are those kind of healthier levels of narcissism, psychopathy, and also Machiavellianism. I do, before we um, finish up for today, I do want to talk about some signs of healthy narcissism. Um, I did a bit of research on this, and again, having a healthy sense of self-worth, um, knowing our value and our worth, learning how to put ourselves first, have, you know, um, you know, have a backbone. Um, to really set boundaries, to not always people please. Uh, I think think having, especially if you were on kind of the um, bottom end of the spectrum, right? Not enough narcissism. You're really going to have to work through some of those childhood wounds and trauma, um, and, and really kind of take a. This is what I had to do. I had to really take kind of a hard look at my life and say, "Okay, hold on a minute here. I, I don't, I don't like being walked on all the time. I'm tired of being a doormat. I really want to. I, I want my sense of self worth to not come from other people's approval. 
I'm not here to fix everything, but I'm also not here to go deep into my masculine where I shut down my feminine self. So for me, some of the positive traits of doing a lot of the the healing, right? Um, I think first and foremost was I attract a different kind of man. I'm not attracting the kinds of men anymore who want, who frankly were kind of looking for the woman who didn't have her own voice, didn't speak up. Um, you know, the the woman who would overwork herself to gain the safety and security that she never had as a child. And instead, finding those kinds of men who are really kind of on a on an equal kind of plane, right? They they see the value and worth of, you know, me or or that woman who has really stepped into her own. And so I I think when we as women, when we restore our relationship with ourselves, then we refuse to exhaust ourselves. Um, by spending time with either a man or family members or anyone around us who doesn't show up consistently and doesn't put in the effort into the kind of connection that we're looking for. So, you know, for me, a big change was also, you know, the, again, the kind of men that I was attracting. What I found interesting is that you know, once I understood that the man invests in what he cares about and loves, I realized that I never had to put myself in the situation again of trying to force or convince a man that I add value to his life. Because he would already be doing that if that's what he saw. And if I'm around a man or considering, uh, you know, dating somebody and he isn't showing that investment, now I'm the kind of person who I don't feel like that means I'm not good enough. It just means that's not the right match for me. So I think that paying attention to all of that, it really showed me where I need to just spend my time and my effort and my love and my emotional bandwidth. So instead of just trying to pursue men who were never going to give me what I was looking for, I actively build a life that I love. And I engage in activities and hobbies and, uh, you know, build a business, do all those things that nourish me. So, because uh, really anything else wastes my time, wastes my effort, wastes my energy. And it also diminishes my transformation journey. Um, but again, this came from a healthy sense of narcissism. I know that I'm a great investment because I have finally come home to myself. I know my value, my worth. And I've learned how to emotionally self-regulate. But I also know how transformative my love is in a man's life. So... Part of the healthy narcissism for me has been learning to not accept just anyone, just any kind of man, and not allow just any kind of man to have access to me 
that's been a big one for me. Um, another one as well was really kind of creating very healthy boundaries, creating and also maintaining those healthy boundaries. I think that, you know, in the past, I didn't have a healthy level of narcissism because I allowed pretty much anyone to kind of use me up in a way like that, especially that emotion, those emotional resources, that emotional bandwidth. Uh, I did a podcast episode called um, Energy Vampires. You know, those emotional vampires, was it energy or emotional? Anyway, it was one of the two, but that emotional vampire, the person who tries to suck all of the light and the love and the, the beauty from you without ever replenishing it. So for me, you know, boundaries are different depending on the person, and then they can also change with with that person. Sometimes they need to be very rigid, and sometimes they're very flexible. Uh, sometimes the boundaries need to be explicitly clear with someone. And then other people, they've never tried to violate my boundary at all. Um, I have a good friend, Marissa. She has never tried to, uh, you know, um, you know, like it's never even been an issue. And, you know, we talk as well about, um, you know, doing the self-honoring things. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but, you know, she called me one day, we were planning on getting together and she was like, Hey, um, I just, yes, I'll, I'll come over and whatnot, but I got to leave kind of early cause I'm, I'm really exhausted. And I was like, come over a different day, honor yourself take care of yourself. So sometimes the boundary isn't just with other people. Sometimes the boundary is also with us. And in this regard, for me, when I mess up a boundary, especially, you know, for me, it's usually saying yes to something that I really don't want to do, or I want to say no to. Or uh, recently for me, it has been saying no to spending time around family especially during the holiday season, because I know that because of a couple of things that have happened just in the last couple of weeks and couple of months, I know that I don't want to put myself in that situation. So even though I have a little bit of shame around it, I still have to kind of work through that a little bit of guilt, maybe not shame, but maybe guilt around, you know, just kind of that, well, a good daughter would do this. Well, you know what? I'm also being a good woman to myself by honoring what I need. And what I don't need is to be around people who are going to put me down, um, you know, be emotionally or verbally uh, neglectful or abusive. So again, that's holding a boundary with myself. But when I mess up a boundary and I'm like, oh, yeah. You know that feeling that you had, Allison, when uh, you know your intuition said, eh, "I don't think we should be doing that. I don't. I don't think we need to spend our time around that person." And we did anyway because we felt a little bit of that guilt. I just remind myself, and I go, "That's okay. That's all right. We're going to start again. We're going to try this again." Oh, that was an excellent reminder. So I don't beat myself up anymore over those things. That was definitely um, a you know, uh, kind of a, an aspect of my own healthy narcissism that I really had to to take hold of. 
another aspect was deep, deep, deep self-love. Um, for months, I stood in a mirror morning and evening as I was, you know, either, uh, you know, washing my face first thing in the morning and do my skincare routine. It was usually paired with my skincare routine because that's usually when I'm in front of the mirror, uh, you know, doing hair, makeup, whatever, or taking off, you know, makeup, that kind of thing. But doing the skincare routine, I would stand in the mirror and sob and tell myself that I loved me. I love you, Allison. I've got your back. I know that we're going through something right now that hurts us. Um, you know, we're sorting through all of these feelings. We're sorting through a lot of, you know, just just kind of years of of trauma, some abuse, some neglect, but I've got you. And a lot of my own self-love is also very much tied to my my inner child. Um, you know, teaching my, teaching little Allison that I have her back. And self-love is always having my own back. That means I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses, but I also continue to listen to my intuition, um, learn how to put myself first Ah, every once in a while, right? Uh, Crazy concept. Um, cause again, in my household, I was not taught to do that. I was taught to overgive, constantly be giving far too much of myself, constantly, uh, you know, mothering my own mother sometimes. And so self-love is a key ingredient to healthy narcissism. And What's interesting to me is self-love isn't just focusing on yourself um, or only on your own needs, but it's really loving yourself enough to, to listen, to know that you are someone worth loving. Um, for me, the self-love is very deeply tied to self-worth. And, you know, learning how to trust myself again, learning how to put my own needs first. Um, Another area for me was celebrating the small wins or just any win, celebrating myself, celebrating my accomplishments, taking pride in the really great things about myself, not diminishing those, not brushing off the compliments anymore. Um, For a while, I had to learn how to just say thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, you look so nice today. Or, oh, you did that so well. Thank you. Instead of, oh, no, you know, uh, or or saying something very self-deprecating. That's actually something I read in an article recently about French women. They aren't putting each other down, and they're not putting themselves down. They're very positive. And so, again, this is just something I like to take away from, you know, other cultures or whatnot. And this is something I really try to practice with my friends. My friends will have a win, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, girl, well done. And I I think that 
having and, and taking pride in our accomplishments, our, our abilities, um, our, you know, the different things that we create. I think part of that is operating from an abundance mindset and not thinking that we need to compete with other women, not thinking that there won't be enough to go around. So for me, that that's really part of it. You know, the unhealthy narcissist is very boastful um, about their accomplishments, even the tiny ones, or they will deeply embellish their accomplishments. But when we have not had healthy narcissism, right, in our lives, it has been very lacking, very low. We have to learn how to praise ourselves, how to, you know, um, really celebrate the little things. Even if it's just uh, the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we speak to ourselves. This isn't arrogance. This is finding, using our abilities, our skills. Again, these are things that we grow, that we increase over time, using our strengths and our weaknesses to find fulfillment in our own life. It's not there to impress other people. It's there to make me feel like I have the life I want. And again, so much of that for me has been learning how to not simply do the things that my mother says that I should do, or the way that she thinks I should live my life, or the way that my father thinks that I should live my life, pretty much anyone else. I think another thing as well when it comes to healthy narcissism is I would say a sense of, it's more than just confidence, because confidence to me is a byproduct of knowing your value and your worth. Um, But I think as well, it's a type of assertiveness. Now, this is a skill that you can learn. Just kind of like, for me, my self-confidence has really come out of feeling like I live authentically, like I'm not trying to hide and cover up things and not show people certain aspects of who I am anymore. I used to be very worried that no man could ever love me because there are a couple of ugly things about me, right? And now, like I embrace the darkness. That's part of, you know, understanding that I am not just um, the light feminine, most of the dark feminine, and then also really digging into my shadow side and then bringing those, those things that I tried to repress into the light and saying, no, they're really not that bad. Because it's interesting when I would share, you know, years ago when I would share a couple things and be like, well, I just feel like I'm a really horrible person because I thought this or I did that or whatever. And people are like, that's, that's what you consider bad. And for me, it was also just not following what other people told me that I should be doing. So for me, the assertiveness is this kind of balance between respecting and considering other people while also advocating for my needs, my goals, you know, myself. 
And again, you can't have one without the other. And I think that that's a really important part of really understanding that assertiveness. I am first comfortable with my own needs. I actually, I think that that's a, that was a good one, Allison. That's actually really important. I want to put a pin in that for a second, which is, you know, highlight that one for a second, which is, um, you, I, I had to become comfortable with meeting some of my own needs and then also being able to express them and not feeling bad anymore. I feel like so much of the time, especially in, you know, Western culture, you know, as women, well, I feel bad advocating for myself, you know, like putting ourselves out there. Um, you know, I, I think that asserting my own needs has really helped me uh, just simply become that person who is assertive in other aspects and avenues, um, you know, of my life, uh, whether it be work um, or whether it be, you know, in my relationships, you know, all those different kinds of things I think were really were really important. And I think that assertiveness is also, I, I think it was also becoming a little bit less agreeable. Um, so there's something uh, called the big five uh, personality uh, test. And um, it goes by the letters ocean, right? And one is openness, one is um, openness to experiences. I tend to be a highly open person. Um, and then agreeableness. I used to rank very low in agreeableness. And so I really struggled with uh, leadership, with um, competing at a high level, and also negotiating. And, uh, you know, like I, I had to learn how to be someone who was less agreeable. I had to instead learn how to put some of my own needs first. Um, some of the other letters in um, the Big Five Personality Test, there's conscientiousness. So, you know, that is... Um, that's really being very goal-driven, being able to... Kind of have some maybe delayed gratification would be the best way that I could say it. Um, you know, going after the kinds of things that you want, also tending to do it in a very methodical kind of way, um, a bit more of maybe that, um, you know, very kind of structured kind of way. And uh, then there's also extroversion versus introversion. And then there's also neuroticism. And what I find fascinating is neuroticism. Women tend to be, tend to score higher on the neuroticism spectrum. Because again, remember, even with big five, this is a spectrum. Um, and I have noticed that it's fluctuated over time. Um, where I think in the past, that neuroticism you know, it, it was a bit higher. 
And now I feel like it's a little bit less. But women tend to score a little higher in neuroticism. I mean, think about it. You know, part of that is uh, due to, you know, how we, um, you know, because we take care of infants. infants. Like we have to, you know, put that kind of, you know, that, that sensitivity that we have, that sensitivity to the feelings and, and the the emotions of other people. We have to really kind of put that that first sometimes. And so yeah, I, I really I really learned that moving down the agreeableness spectrum, always putting other people's needs first, always being friendly, always being like hyper compassionate, right? didn't really serve other people very well, but it also didn't serve me very well. Uh, so, you know, those are, those are some things that kind of overlap a little bit, um, especially kind of with that assertiveness. And then, you know, I would also say that becoming more narcissistic or having a healthy narcissism has really helped me not just have goals in life. I've always I think partly due to my personality type, I've always been a very goal-driven person, but I never knew how to accomplish those goals. And it's more than just having a plan, right? I, I tend to be a bit of a planner. Um, but for me, it was learning how to take that strong commitment to the goal that I had, the thing that I wanted to accomplish, and taking small actions daily. I think that it's interesting that, you know, unhealthy narcissists have unrealistic dreams of achievement and success. The healthy narcissist is able to really identify a goal and say, yeah, no, that's something that I could absolutely work towards. Um, they create a plan for achieving them. It does not mean that they're always practical, right? The healthy narcissist, we, you know, I, I would say that I have much more healthy narcissism now, and I still have some big grand dreams, and those are beautiful, but I also am doing the things in the meantime, right? To build my business, to move my life forward, to create wealth and savings, to also really kind of go against the grain, you know, uh, live a life that is a little countercultural. Um, I, I really kind of appreciate all of that, but I've got goals towards it. I've got things that I, I see that, you know, that I accomplish that, you know, I, I don't always follow what other people do. Um, you know, I have learned to kind of uh, marry some of these different feminine archetypes that I have that in the past felt very competing. And instead, I'm able to build knowledge, uh, put that knowledge out there for people, um, you know, allow them to also grow and transform their own lives. Yet at the same time, I can also be the person who's fairly introverted. Um, I love spending time with myself. I love growing the garden and, you know, creating a beautiful home uh, that feels very restful and is kind of a sanctuary to me. I can do both. I can go out into the world and I can have a deep uh, inner knowing and 
sense of inner, like an inner home, an inner self. So for me, those have been some of the kind of bigger takeaways when it comes to really creating some healthy narcissism in my life. And yeah, that's, uh, that's something that I just kind of continue to build on. And it's something I continue to think about, um, you know, what's, what's a healthy spectrum where when I'm on the spectrum of narcissism, where's kind of that healthy balance? Probably because I had to move from a low sense of narcissism to a healthy sense of narcissism, I haven't had the opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, I I noticed some traits in myself that were, you know, either overt or covert narcissist, right? These different kinds of types of narcissism. I haven't found that to be true. So, you know, I don't have a whole lot of insight necessarily on how to kind of, uh, you know, maybe just simply stop always putting yourself first or having kind of that no compassion for other people uh, and and whatnot. But mine has been kind of the needing to build a little bit of that healthy sense of putting myself first. So I, again, I hope that this was helpful for you. Um, it's been something that I continue to explore, uh, continue to look at myself, reevaluate, do a lot of self-assessment with, and um, I really recommend that you do the same. Um, I have found that it's incredibly helpful for building the kind of life that I have wanted. If you are interested in continuing to work with yourself, um, grow yourself. I have something called a members club, and this is a community of women uh, where we believe we are our own best self-healers, and it's really a self-guided journey, self-healing journey that you can take yourself on. So um, I'm working through the Mighty Networks app, which I really enjoy. Um, I have one section that is the free portion, which is just the Create Love Freedom community. And we do a live call every month there. And then I just kind of post some things, uh, some interesting things. I also have a book club there uh, for some of the psychology or self-healing or transformational books that I'm reading that I think could be helpful and interesting to people. Um, but I also uh, have the members club portion, and that is uh, where each month I bring forward a new masterclass or self-healing topic, and I do multiple videos um, on that topic. So in the past, we've done, uh, you know, we've looked at attachment style, whether that be secure attachment or the three different types of insecure attachment. I've also looked at the abandonment wound and self-limiting beliefs. Um, We've looked at the fear of rejection, fear of commitment, enmeshment. Um, I did a masterclass on the nervous system and polyvagal theory. And uh, this month in our masterclass, we're looking at sabotaging our relationships. We've looked at perfectionism and the feminine. Um, And we will continue to, you know, 
look at these different topics. I also have created a workbook or some workbook pages for you to go through um, as you kind of look at the content and the masterclass for that month so that you can do some self-evaluating. Um, you can really dive into yourself, your childhood, your trauma, your wounds, your past relationships, and really pull out some of those patterns and say, okay, that's something that keeps coming up for me, and I'm going to keep working on transforming that into a different mindset because I held on to these old things that I needed to keep me safe in my childhood or in a relationship or in my life for so long, but I don't need those anymore because I am teaching myself how to be this healthier person and really have the the life, the love, the relationships, um, the career that I'm looking for. So if you'd like to check that out, um, it is linked in the show notes, um, but you can also go to at create love freedom on Instagram and click on the link in my bio, just click on members club there and you will be directed to that. I also have a free quiz, uh, that is available to you right now. Again, uh, it is linked in the show notes, but you can also go to the link in my bio, um, on Instagram. Again, I'm at Create Love Freedom, and it is called the Feminine Reclaiming Process Quiz. Um, I also have a Feminine Reclaiming Process course. So in the quiz, you can take that free quiz. Uh, you'll get your immediate results, whether you are the wounded, the distorted, the awakened, or the divine feminine. And I've created a course for each one of those areas. So if you are the wounded or the distorted feminine, how do you heal those wounds and move into your awakened space? The awakened space is really where you are aware of some of these things uh, that are coming up for you and then really learning how to heal, you know, those wounds, how to, um, uh, you know, really, really strengthen your, your feminine. Um, you know, looking at the different kinds of men that you attract, uh, learning how to embrace the feminine art of receiving, um, how to be single on purpose for a little while as you are healing a lot of your wounds, uh, reinventing yourself, uh, learning how to invest in yourself. Uh, we also go into sexual repression um, and how to turn that into sexual abundance. Uh, which has been a big uh, step for me as well. And then also in the divine feminine uh, part of the course, we really look at embracing both your light and your dark feminine qualities. We look at detaching, the art of detachment. We also look at how to look at how to nurture your feminine energy, how to uh, create the healthy relationships and the emotional intimacy that you're looking for. Um, you know, living from a place of deep authenticity and then bringing your deepest purpose into the world, uh, through your work, um, and through, you know, either connecting with other, uh, women or other men as well, um, on that kind of higher level. How do you bring that into, uh, your life so that you're really creating a life that feels deeply rich and deeply fulfilling to you? So, uh, if you would like to check that out, you can take the free um, quiz. There's a link there to send me your email address. Um, 
for the course, or you can also uh, just go into the link in my bio, uh, also linked down here in the show notes, um, so that you can have access to um, the Feminine Reclaiming course. So uh, I would love it if you were to join us there. I am very excited to see the transformation that happens for so many of you in that process. And if you would like to share your story with me, I have many people, both men and women, uh, interestingly enough, gay and straight, who either reach out via Instagram and send me a message um, or who send me an email and tell me a little bit about their story and what they're going through. My email is createlovefreedom@gmail.com. So again, I hope that this episode was helpful for you. Until next time.